Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. He's been shot six times. Halloweenies. He's been burned alive. Halloweenies. He's lost his head. Halloweenies. Michael Myers can't and won't be stopped, which is why he returns this October. In anticipation, the Consequence Podcast Network presents Halloweenies, a limited series that carves out one Halloween movie a month, leading all the way up to the October 19th release of David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's new movie. You'll get tricks. You'll get treats. You'll get Michael. Tune in for the night we came home. Consequence Podcast Network. of you beautiful pod people out there. I am your host, Leo Phillips, and this that you're tuning into is This Must Be The Gig. It's your little backstage pass to the world of live music. And if this is the first time you are joining us, hello! Um, I need to be less excited, I think. Hello! I gotta play it cool. Hello! No way! Pump it up! Hello! <laughs> yeah, there you go. Doubtfire it. Yeah. Hello! <laughs> oh my god, we've gone mad. Um, and if you have gone mad too, you are in the right place. So if this really is the first time that you are tuning in, every single week I bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and performance scene. That could mean a musician, a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, an actor, and really just anyone who is totally obsessed with live music the way that we all are. So before we get into this week's guest... Let's check in with our constant companion here. I like the constant companion. I like what I just said. (laughs) Let's check in with our constant companion here at the TMBTG Studios. Engineer Adam. Hello. Hey. Hello. (laughs) Doubtfiring it from the start. (laughs) The only part of doubtfire that I resonate with is doubt. Oof. That really indicates what kind of week we've been having here in this beautiful city of Chicago. It's been so busy, so I'm not going to keep you all waiting from our fantastic episode. Let's just say I told our guest this week to call me on the line. Did you tell him to call you, call you anytime? I did. That's right. This week we have the wonderful Chris Stein, co-founder and guitarist of Punk Heroes, 
Blondie, another you, name that people call me. That is true. You are. <laughs> I, I don't call you that, but maybe I should no. start. Yeah, but no. this is just another incredible legend to add to the TMBTG pod guest list. God, Chris is about to release Point of View, Me, New York City, and the Punk Scene. It's his brand new book of previously unseen photos from the iconic punk moment in New York in the 1970s. And putting out a book like that has naturally gotten him to be in the mood to tell some stories, tell some amazing, amazing anecdotes and tales from his experience. Mm -hmm. He was at the heart of one of the like most important moments in rock history. He was right there in the in the thick of it. Mm-hmm, that's right. I, and I also spoke to him about his new book, as well as the origins of Blondie and so much more. It was such an amazing way to get a little detailed perspective of what it was like in those days. And he just drops names without even <laughs> knowing that they are crazy to drop. I mean, that puts it all in perspective, right? We all talk about CBGBs and the Mud Club and like mm-hmm. just we look at that moment from our outsider perspective and we mythologize every bit of it. And he was was actually there and he's just like oh yeah i was hanging out with them at the club and i think he's just i think that's just uh, uh, the epitome of a cool person absolutely this is totally just the coolest of cool he's what we call chill he's <laughs> he's chill but maybe you were at one of those early blondie shows back in the day you were at mm-hmm. cbgb's you were in new york if so leave us a note about it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at TMBTG Pod. <laughs> or better yet, leave it as a five star review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll shout you out on an upcoming episode. Don't you want to be shouted out? Don't you want to be shouted at, outed, out? Out shouted? Out shout out. But let us not be more distracted, please, because we could probably go on forever about Chris. So enjoy. This is our wonderful chat. Me and Chris, goodbye. There's aspects of touring that are much easier now than they used to be back in the old days. It's just, you know, everything's a lot slicker now than it used to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, though, when you guys first started touring? Do you remember that time? Yeah, sure. You know, we you know we never had the tour buses and stuff. And we went to Australia and, like, this beat-up school bus, you know, it was, you know, now, you know, we didn't have the tour buses with bathrooms and, and mm. bunks and all that kind of stuff. It was very different. Gosh, I'm sure. It's so nice to, to chat to you again. I know we chatted a few years ago. Uh, you and Debbie and I. So it, it's really nice to chat to you in this in this way, just because Thanks. I know that you have your book coming out, and I've had the pleasure of a digital copy for the last week and a bit, and it's just it's fantastic. And I feel I feel sad oh, that yeah, it's a pleasure. It's great. If I can say that it's great digitally, I can't even imagine what the actual physical manifestation of that must look like. Yeah, um, well, yeah. Well, you know, it was. It was what it was. Everybody just took it for granted. I don't think nobody really thought about the future much. You know? mm. Mm. What, when you were taking time. your photos? Yeah, when everybody was in the environment there, it was, you know, it was people were just in the moment, you know, nobody thought about how... I certainly didn't think about the 
city changing. I think about more now what things will be like in a hundred years than I did then. I think. Mm. You know? mm. Why do you think that's so? Is it just because things are more documented I, in public now, or do you think just the yeah, time? Yeah, maybe, was... and that's probably, and also there wasn't that much of a difference between. You know, 1920 and 1970, you know, physically. I mean, telephones got better and the TVs got better, but, you know, it wasn't as extreme as it is now Mm. till then, you know. But when did your attention turn to photography? Was that something that came before your interest in music or was it simultaneously just those two creative parts? I mean, yeah, I I, know most, I mean, more, a little bit later. I mean, I was always fooling around with cameras when I was a little kid, you know old cameras but and taking pictures of my toys and stuff like that but uh <laughs> wow. um but i didn't really start thinking about photography as an art form until yeah, i guess i was like around 18 or something do you remember your first camera do you what do you shoot what do you normally shoot with uh, now it was digital stuff but then i was uh probably a pentax camera japanese mm. camera yeah oh so you're all digital now yeah, it's just so much easier to deal with. I mean, I feel I think, you know, film is like vinyl. You know, it's kind of like a fetish thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that it's really any better. Mm. I think you can imitate. You know, you can. It's just the same as audio. You know, you mm. can imitate any of those uh, analog sounds with digital mediums. Mm. I think it's just because, yeah, as you said, it's a fetish. I think photographers just find that it's so tactile, so actually getting things developed. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I really like printing. I mm. used to really love making making prints. I have a printer guy now prints from the yeah. digital stuff. Yes. I, so most of the book, so every time I read about it, people always would mention like the quote-unquote cast of characters that were featured in the book. Did it feel as if you were surrounded by those characters at the time? Because there were so many people yeah, sure. who, yeah, who in hindsight had such big personalities and iconic stamps in style. But did it feel unusual or special then? Or is that just like Sheen, you know, like nostalgia? No, not, not really. No, this is what we were involved in. I, mm. well, you know, I mean, my, you know, my parents were kind of on the fringe. You know, they were like, Red, you know, communists, mm. and you know they were artistic, and I just grew up in that environment always. And even even when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, with a lot of kids who didn't go on to be in the arts, who just went on to have you know regular lives, mm. uh, it still was you know we were still I always felt like it was a fringe. Thing, the stuff we were interested in and attracted to, uh, and then when I, you know, and I was always aware of what was going on in New York with like the beatniks and downtown, mm. and, you know, when I was a, you know, a little kid. I went to the Newport Folk Festival in 1966. Wow. Which was, the, that was like one of my first experiences like that, and that was, you know, the year after Dylan got booed for playing rock and roll, and then... Yeah. By that time, by that time, all the electric bands were accepted, and that was a great moment. I remember that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was always going on. And then I would just go into the, into Manhattan and hang out in the Village, mm. and that was a lot of really fringe people in the West Village around McDougal Street. You know, I'd see mm. Jimi Hendrix walking around, Keith Richards sometimes, and different people. 
But I mean, because I remember last time chatting and you have such a really calming kind of humble way that you look at things. But, you know, looking at this book uh, and even just looking at your Instagram of the things that you post from the past and things that you're seeing now, it just feels like you are you're never the subject, of course, because you're behind the lens, but you're so in these very intimate moments that I don't feel anybody else could have captured, like that picture of Iggy at his door. And there's an, another set of photos I love titled Cages, that group of kind of hip teens, you know, behind a, a wide fence and yeah. a, a mother and a child yeah, at yeah. the zoo looking at an elephant <laughs> yeah. and a group of kids playing baseball at the park. Like there's so many moments where you are looking out, you know, and seeing these people. Do you feel like that intimacy and that kind of observant feeling when you're on stage as well? Like, does it does that uh, translate oh, yeah, when shows. you're on stage? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel very, there's always a connection with the audience. But I think everybody in the band, for the most part, I know Debbie certainly feels very connected to the crowd you know and there's a back and forth that goes on this is I, you know all good shows are like that uh and there's always this sort of tribal element mm. you know, i describe it you know it just be, becomes a it's it's a unique phenomena you know mm. yeah um, that's the yeah. that's the right word definitely phenomenon because especially because you just yeah. mentioned now the newport folk festival in 1966 who do you remember who played? Who was the was that the first uh, one of the first show the festival? Love and Spoonful. You know, well, it was like the year before when Dylan was went up and he used this guy from Paul Butterfield band and he played electric and it was super controversial. I mean, all the you know, all these guys at the festival were just tourists and they didn't want to hear electric music and they it was like you know it was like. Justin Bieber opening up for Metallica or something. Yeah. I don't know. You know people were just, were just were horrified, you know? Yeah. So, but then the very next year, it was all completely accepted. And I remember, you know, the Spoonful played and then we accepted and just, you know, a lot of electric bands and Butterfield again and all, the, all these guys. You know, just really big Butterfield fan. It was, uh, you know, Mike Bloomfield. I don't know if you know who he was. Mm. Amazing guitar player. He was, uh, you know, those guys were phenomenal. You know, maybe some, you know, some of the old, older blues guys were there as electric bands at that point. Mike Bloomfield, he he was born in Chicago, I think, uh, from what yeah. I remember. Yeah, I live in Chicago now, and I remember reading up about him. Oh yeah, him. no, Bloomfield is just, he's yeah. just the hero. I mean, he was an innovative guitar player. You know, just uh, he was doing stuff these guys are doing now. Mm. Years, so years many years before. ago. Yeah. yeah. Is he? So who? Who then is that guitarist that really inspired you as well? Was there one, or was it more of a movement uh, I mean, and I, a time? Yeah, it was kind of collective. Yeah, I mean, a little usual suspect. I'm a big Hendrix fan. Hendrix really stands up for me. The test of time, you know. Some other guys must have a little dated, but the Hendrix stuff is so innovative. I just, re you know, I recently saw that he had uh, discussed um, working with Miles Davis, but, it, you know, it never came about, but that would have been amazing. Wow. You know? I can't imagine 
what that would have been like. I think it probably didn't happen because the world would have exploded probably from that much creative yeah. energy. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of almost, if I could use the word, luminaries from that punk and new wave scene. But is there one performer really that people at the time were all saying, oh, we have to make sure we go see that person. Was there that one band or artist uh, when you and Debbie were there was you know, a, in there the was, scene? There was a couple. I mean, I would always go see the Ramones. I loved the Ramones. And Richard Hell, I really loved Richard. And, I, you know, I saw Patti Smith very early on when it was just her and Lenny. And she would do the, you know, poetry reading, and it was almost a parody of rock and roll, but I just thought it was genius what she was doing. Wow. And, that, you know, I I remember thinking, oh, that she really needs to have a band because it was, you know, she would read poetry and then do, do the spoken word stuff, and then Lenny would come out and they would do a little bit of music. I turned to a show at a place called Le Jardin, mm. which was, I'm not exactly sure where it was, like the French, and uh, it's probably, you know, big town somewhere. And I, that, I was really taken with her. That was before I met Debbie's. Early, probably seventy-two, I guess. Oh my gosh! But that's so. Wait, when did you meet Debbie? What year was that? In seventy-three. Next year, seventy-three. So, were you playing guitar before you had met her? Were you? Were oh yeah, you... I was always jamming with people. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, I'm kind of stuck on that Patty Smith experience because I saw her <laughs> a few years back in Spain, and I just uh, I I felt like. Thank God there were so many people in the crowd because I probably would have lost my balance because it was just so, yeah. uh, it was just so fantastic. But that's, that's, it's so interesting that you, you say these names, but it feels like those are the names that are like in stone now, but you saw them before they were even fully developed, which is, and the same with what people would say about Blondie as well, is that those, yeah, that well, era I, I, was I, I, so I, magical. I was uh, I was at a lot of you know odd musical events things I think I saw when I when I was in San Francisco I guess in '67 I saw Steve Miller and his band playing like in a high school parking lot to like ten people. Oh my god! <laughs> that was that you know. Dude, what did so you think I, about I, the I, band? I, he was I was a big fan of his. I always I saw him a bunch of times way back. Yeah, because his hits kind of came in the 70s. Yeah, because they started yeah. in the 60s and then the hits kind of came in the 70s. In a high school parking lot, did you just like drive past? Yeah. Were one of your mates like, oh, we've no, got to go we, see we this man? We went to this We went to this gig, but he, it was something, I think it was a high school. It was just a really minor event, you know, mm. that he wound up playing at. That's crazy. Is that really these these yeah. type of experiences? Is that the craziest? Because thinking back now, obviously at the time you didn't know what you were seeing. Um, you were just experiencing music as a fan. But looking back, yeah, what is the what is that one show where you felt this is the this is exactly what I've always wanted to see. This is what makes me feel the most. Is there a show that you know is most memorable for you? Well, later during the band tour, we saw Bob Marley in Texas. That was really, that was one of my favorite shows. Wow. I know it's difficult to think back, uh, considering you know, obviously it's kind of ironic because we're speaking about you know your collection of photographs as well in your in your upcoming book, and it's just 
I think that it's so interesting that you got to tour with the band and then also experience such a vivid all the art was right there for you you know and you you captured it which is it's so wonderful did you ever show your photos to people at the time yeah sure the photos went around you know i mean you know queen magazine published a lot of schools and I i would sometimes shoot for them and for the english papers uh you know melody maker and enemy i would get photos in those things over the years you know so mm-hmm. yeah it was always ongoing i was always you know there's a lot of pictures in different places and then going back to obviously you know blondie and obviously the book and kind of punk at large it's, it's all so connected to new york were shows in new york better than shows elsewhere or was it one of those because i know you mentioned bob marley in texas and Steve Miliband in San Francisco. So was it one of those hometown advantage kind of situations that you felt, uh, yeah, I've got but, enough? You know, I, I, <laughs> I remember, you know, when Blondie first went to Los Angeles, and that was very exciting. We were there for a while playing shows at the Whiskey. That was, you know, and all the kids were so enthusiastic. Mm. Um, it varied. Now, you know, I remember the, going to the first show maybe out of town, probably was like Philadelphia or Boston or something. Mm. So, you know, we, we were just driving the car with the equipment in it and all that kind of stuff. But also, I mean, so much art has been made about New York in the 70s in kind of every conceivable form you can think of. Why do you think so many yeah. people feel the draw to encapsulate that moment and that place, that New York in the 70s? Why do you think, because you were there, you were capturing it. Why, what, I, what was it? Some of the kind of the connectivity to the past. Like, you know, there was, after 9-11, you know, there was this big sea change, as it were, with the city, and, and probably in a lot of Western cities, and I don't think there was another recession in 2008, mm-hmm. everything changed very dramatically, and it's less connected to the past, and I, and I think you know, I mean, I would love to go back and take pictures in New York, with, you know, in 1920 or whatever. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's a different era and things are, you know, things are just so different than, even though it's physically very similar, it's not a tremendous, you know, jump in the physicality of the city, there's, there's still social and contextual difference yeah i love how even a little story of your apartment in the book can encapsulate so many different musical icons though like the fact alone that you passed the place on to tommy ramone or that like your 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 friend who stayed there with you moved in with edgar winter's ex and like how tight-knit how tight-knit was that world at that point like there were so many fascinating artists but it seems from your work that there were concentric circles that intersected yeah well the new york scene was everybody was very interconnected and it all kind of a lot of it centered around andy warhol he was like connected to everybody in one way or another um but uh, you know all the bands from the period knew each other from the 70s you know later when you know changed into the hardcore scene. I didn't know those guys as much. We were traveling around so much that we weren't there. 
but I mean, giving your obviously your, the fact that like your you passed the place on to Tommy Ramone, you know, like even just that is just. <laughs> I'm sure fans yeah, would just go crazy. Just, yeah, he just needed a place to live. So you know, I guess uh, I, I, I've known him from before the Ramones, so we were always close. But uh, we were always very close with those guys with the Ramones. You know. How do you how do you feel about how that band has kind of taken on its iconic status through uh, apparel as well? Like having people, you know, yeah, most well, most often you'll wear a Ramones t-shirt or, or a Stones t-shirt. They, they, those are the kind of two big uh, t-shirt brands for bands. Yeah, well, Arturo was a genius. You know, he's the one that developed the American Eagle motif for them, and uh, you know. He's, you know, Backstreet Boys or fucking or One Direction made a similar T-shirt. I mean, it's everybody. It's just it's ubiquitous now. The eagle mm -hmm. design. Everybody's got their own version of it. It was kind of amazing. Uh, he was, you know, Arturo was a, had a great graphic sense. So you mentioned obviously Andy Warhol and and anybody just hearing that name would, you know, clutch at their <laughs> clutch at their heart because. You know, he, he was such an iconic uh, status and such a symbol now. But so he was kind of, as, as you said, he was like the epicenter. And then everybody who knew him just knew each other. Is that what it felt like? Yeah, everybody in the arts in New York either knew somebody who was directly connected to Andy or, you know, somebody who knew somebody that was connected to Andy. He was just, you know, he was... Yeah, he was just like a focal point for lots of different aspects in the art and music scene. So did you? So when you, you and Deb, Debbie went to go play a show, how would you get, let everybody know? Because as you said, there was mostly musicians in the audience. So did people just like find out about your shows? There would always be ads in the Village Voice and. Uh, um, you know, people would take out ads and flyers was pretty much it. That was pretty much it, really, as far as letting the world in general know. And then, you know, there'd be a poster on CBGB's window, you know, saying who was coming within the next week. Having that experience of being a part of that scene and kind of bringing up that scene in the 70s, was there a show that you and Debbie played that you felt was just you know the best show you played or maybe the worst show you played do you remember any of those first early uh, shows not really there were some memorable shows there was we played one show at cbgb's when ever you know the things were starting to get attention and we were working we were working with rod swenson who was the plasmatics manager mm -hmm. And he videoed it. I think the videos are out, out now somewhere. I think they're available. And then during the show, somebody called the fire department. And it was really crazy. It was so great because, you know, these guys showed up in full fire department outfits and came into CBGB's in the middle <laughs> of this concert. And I always suspected it was him who did it kind of to, to give make for, <laughs> yeah, Publicity. make for the... A crazier event, yeah. So, <laughs> what did they, we never did they found out. Do they try and stop 
did they try shut it down? No, they or? just you know came in and then left. But they, you know the fire truck pulled out in front of CBGB's the whole thing. Oh my gosh! And your experiences and your memories at CBGB's, how was what sticks out for you other than obviously playing so many of your formative gigs there? What stood uh, out? Lots of different stuff. You know how it was just very funky and isolated. It was, uh, you know, it was very off by itself. There wasn't anything around it. It's not like, I mean, that's the other thing that's changed in New York. Everything is, you know, mm. surrounded by trendy coffee shops or whatever the hell it is, you know, high-end mm. mm. high end high shopping and stuff. And, and CBS was just off by itself in the middle of this really shitty neighborhood at mm. the time. And and was that kind of your favorite spot to play in New York, or do you feel like well, it's just it's venues? just what it was, you know. Mm -hmm. Max's was we always enjoyed playing at Max's and Mother's, and there was a few other clubs, but CV's was one of the main places, you know. That was just kind of the main thing. We played there every weekend for seven months in a row at one point. Every single weekend. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. But, I mean, you've kind of got, continuously, you've toured, you know, it's never really stopped. Or has there been big breaks between you guys playing shows? Well, just in that after, you know, when at the end of the Blondie period, after 82, there mm -hmm. was a, many years until we started up again in 96. What did you do that in was, that break? Well, we did a lot of Debbie solo projects. I was, mm. I was still playing, playing with her. Mm, yeah. Let's go back to your book. I think it's very clear throughout that there was a dose of like working class family and community and warmth outside of the punk scene that we've all come to kind of idolize. How close did those worlds get? Like, were you ever looking out off the stage and seeing people and thinking, oh, You've wandered into the wrong show. This isn't going to be for you. Or were the worlds fairly separate? Yeah, no, it was pretty much isolated. And I, I always felt that anybody that would find their way into the clubs was pretty sophisticated anyway. Mm. Um, I, you know, occasionally. some. You know, later when we got out, when we had Heart of Glass as a hit, mm. it was a little weird to try to, crossover into that disco world because the disco world was very working class and lower middle class and it, that you know represented a different um, milieu you know than mm. what we were in because all you know the kids at CBGB's were all very um, kind of intellectual whether or not they were working class or not there mm. was this whole you know, intelligentsia thing going on. And then obviously, as you you kind of transitioned into the, the dance and disco, so did were there any shows that you played at that time that stood out, especially considering how many how many bands are, were around that time and, and how, you know, popular you were already? Yeah, we played in, we played in like full-on disco clubs and, you know, they would kind of get the one song, but then people wouldn't... Uh, you know, they the 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 rock and roll stuff wouldn't work as, yeah. as successfully. Yeah, and and so also there's a photo that you took of JG Thirwell and Lydia Lunch. Obviously, you say well, we in just the would book go. I would I, I used to Debbie and me would go to wrestling frequently, and this was, that was before Cindy Lauper was, you know, she, before the Cindy 
period. Mm. And, I remember, you know, we met Vince McMahon and all those guys. And I just was always a big wrestling fan because of the theater of it all. Mm. You know, it, it was interesting, so... But are you telling me that Lydia Lunch is a wrestling fan as well? Oh, yeah. Lydia loved wrestling. And oh, my I, gosh. I, I, wow. I know I went at least one or maybe two two or more shows to her. And we would always get good seats. You know, Lydia was great. I just haven't seen her for a couple of years now, but she was one of my favorite people. Do you still watch wrestling now? Do you still get that feeling? Uh, not that so did? much because I'm, I'm just not caught up on the storylines now and the characters, but... I was, you know, <laughs> really, I was into it in the kind of golden age yeah. back then. Yeah. And there are also, there are a lot of shots, you know, a- around that, that era. Did you feel like you were documenting a time, especially with the wrestling and, and going to shows that you loved? Did you, did you want to remember those moments because you thought that in future it would, you know, somehow... I don't know, inform what you did, or did you have no idea that No, it would be... I was probably just more about trying to make nice photographs and nice graphics and arts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was, I don't think I would, because certainly in the early days, in the 70s, it was just, it was just a matter of, you know, photographing our friends and what was going on around us, and I didn't think of it in a historical perspective mm-hmm. at all. And, I mean, speaking about that, there's so many shots with Debbie posing with legendary musicians or, you know, yeah. musicians posing with the legendary Debbie. But is there is there someone who you were most excited to meet or someone that you wish you were able, you know, to meet that you weren't able to? Well, you know, one one time, you know, later when we were doing better, I guess, you know, like around 1980, we had a fancier place living quarters uptown and one night just in the middle of the night there was doorbell rang and it was bowie and jagger and that was very exciting because i was you know i'd always been a huge stones fan Mm. so that was nice i got i got to sit around with him and smoke a joint and it was really nice you know Mm. so so you were a stones fan obviously before before oh yeah i was always a big Mm. stones fan and so him he was with bowie yeah i mean we had known we had known bowie from the going on tour with Iggy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were always maintained a relationship with Bowie to some degree or other, And but I, I had never met Jagger. That was nice. Mm. So did, was there ever a point where you wanted to be in a photo as well? Or were you always just uh, okay with being on the other side? Um, I, we met recently. My wife and I were on a plane and with Malcolm McDowell. Mm. So I, I wanted to get a picture with him. But, uh, you know, not so much. I'm happy to take pictures of people. Because I could just picture, you know, you asking Debbie to take a photo of you with Jagger. I mean, that's... Yeah, no, I no, I never took, didn't take any pictures that evening. You sound like you played it very You know, cool. sometimes, it just, sometimes it just doesn't feel appropriate. Of so. course. But so you're sitting there smoking a joint with Mick Jagger and Bowie's there. Well, how much time did you have to get, you know, to chat and... Were you? Was it? Was there always a lot of people around? Or no, no. It was you... just. It was just like, uh, you know, five, six of us. That was it. It was those guys in there. I think Jerry was with Jagger, and I think Bowie was with Ava Cherry. And I so, did you chat about? Did you chat about art and and 
perhaps just your experiences or what did you, how did you connect really? What did you connect? Oh, on? this and that, you know, um, you know, some odd stories went back and forth, but I don't remember a lot of the specifics. I just remember the general thing. Mm -hmm. uh, another another time we were when we were lived on 58th Street, we sat around with Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson watching the Tin Drum, you know the movie. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. So we. So <laughs> everybody got really. Uh, we kind of had met Jane previously, and that's when they were shooting that Wall Street movie downtown. Mm -hmm. So they, I don't know that they just showed up. And that was just our little crummy apartment, but that was that was amusing. I remember that well. Was she so? I mean, the tin drum that was what in seventy, what nine or eighties? I'm not sure what year that was. I, I'd have to yeah, check. Yeah, I'm not sure what year is. What's that, Gunter Grass? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great movie. It's amazing. It's, I haven't thought about that yeah. movie in so long. That's crazy. That's great. So you're sitting around with Jane Fonda, and so did yeah, you, we smoked a lot of weed. Okay. I love how all your stories revolve around a nice joint. It's really good. Well, those, those, you know, in social settings, I've yes. never been like a drinker, you know, so. Oh, you but haven't? Days, yeah, it's no. so difficult, especially from the punk scene. You always think that it was so hard not to be in that and, and get yeah. really, um, heavily stuck in that drug and, and drink scene. How did you avoid it? Yeah. No, I didn't. Everybody got fucked up. We all got fucked yeah. up with drugs. It was just, you know, it's what it was. I mean, you know, I think, you know, the war on drugs is, is a disaster and mm. has just been, that's a whole other category. Mm. But I think, you know, I think that so many of the social problems we have now is based on the war on drugs. It's like prohibition, you know. Mm. Prohibition, mm. the most successful thing about prohibition was um, establishing organized crime in America mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. same thing with the war on drugs mm -hmm. especially because you experienced that in a time when it seems looking back at it that th people were more free and they wanted to do just get, escape more but now yeah. you know obviously the, the issues that the society are facing are di directly related to the political landscape so it's so difficult to you can't you can't uh, disconnect the two. That, that, yeah, that's that really. Yeah, makes I mean, sense. And also there was less information about mm -hmm. drugs, but as soon as you know, as soon as all this resistance started, mm -hmm. it just all went to hell. I mean, in the '80s, you know, the Lower East Side was much worse than when we were there in the '70s. So you said you were living on 58th Street. So did you move again after that? Uh, yeah, a bunch of times, mm -hmm. different places, you know. So, but you've always wanted to stay in New York. There's never been an option yeah, for you to leave. No, I mean, we, you know, we lived in Los Angeles for months at a time and mm. in London for month, months at a time, but not for that long. We've always, you know, I've always stayed in New York. But even, like, decades after Blondie really first kind of established that legacy, you are also, you know, you're still releasing music and you're still... Hopefully soon you'll be able to tour again, you know, with the band. Hopefully you'll be feeling better. Yeah. But how yeah, yeah. is is the live show something that you continue to try and work on, or is it just a byproduct of the writing that because uh, the writing's so good, you know? Bit. I mean, I don't know how. It, you know, I mean, the 
the majority of the people really just are expecting a certain thing from the live shows. It's not like we do mm. a tremendous amount of experimentation. You know, it's not like Bob Dylan or something is always changing his material around. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we save it for the recordings a little more of the experimentation. I'll see. We need to start some new recording soon. Are you are you going to start recording again? Yeah, maybe around the end of the year. I really enjoyed working with John Congleton. He was great. And so mm, I moved oh my to, gosh. to go on to do another project with him for that sure. That would be amazing, especially with a book coming out. I feel like maybe that's just my perception of it, but it's such a stamp on a certain time that I think a lot of people, you know, that they who followed the band, they have known that you've been an artist, but I think that this is a an incredible way to show how much the band were formative in all these other, you know, icon- iconic bands' lives. So you're, you're yeah, also well, just as, as a part of that um, as they were, yeah. you know, part of your lives. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Well, there was a lot of back and forth between us and all those guys. But, mm. you know, even now I see bands, you know, it's kind of why we've been... You know, when we stopped working in the 80s, mm. there was about a 10-year period where there wasn't a lot of, you know, feedback. And then I started seeing more and more people referencing Blondie and more musicians referencing Blondie. So that was part of what, you know, helped us, you know, think to put it back together. Was there ever a band, though, that you wish you could have played in? Some band that you really maybe had seen when you were younger and starting out on guitar and going to shows? Was there a band that you you felt you, you know, you felt akin toward? Uh, Yeah, a lot of bands. You know, I I tried out for television and I Ah. tried out for for the Heartbreakers when they were starting up after, after, you know, after television and the dolls broke up i played with those guys you did? You know, different oh, things wow. i didn't yeah. know that yeah yeah I, I barely remember the television thing but both Berlaine <laughs> and hell remembered it they both told me they remembered it yeah <laughs> i mean I, I think that your memory's pretty great i have to say i can't re- really even remember what happened uh, a few days ago so the fact that you're yeah well being... you know it depends <laughs> <laughs> so the photographs help cue the memories you know Absolutely, and that's why I love that even the title of the book, Point of View, Me, New York City, you know, and the punk scene, I think that that's such a, it's such a clear-cut way to say, like, this is almost a little bit of a visual memoir, and it shows so much of your life. Yeah, for sure. So are you going to be, so you, you just take your, what, what, so you said you, you shoot on digital now. What do you shoot with? Uh, Fuji cameras a lot. I have a couple of them, and um, you know some of the stuff is so ridiculously expensive. I you know I love it. I'm, I know. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, Leica has lent me a few things, but I really can't afford forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars for a rig at this mm-hmm. point. So it seems. I mean, I you know I probably could spend it, but it seems kind of crazy. Do you ever? Yeah, no, I don't think it's ever worth it to feel. If if it feels as if it's a part of you, like a limb that you need to spend fifty thousand dollars on, then that's yeah, fine. Yeah, but yeah. I, especially considering that you have your guitars and all your instruments, I'm sure yeah. that's also a, a, a you know you a cumulative uh, investment as well. 
Um, yeah, but that's well, it, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm I shoot on Canon just out of shooting concerts and stuff. It's the easiest. Um, but, yeah, well, but those are great. Canons they're easy. Are great. They're just uh, light. You know, they're very light and uh, much. And you know, some of the lenses are quite affordable. Um, but I know, yeah, I know that uh, there's there's more expensive options out there. But you're right, it is. It gets really crazy. I don't know why they make it so yeah, expensive. Yeah, it gets crazy. That's um, just what it is, you know. I don't know either if it could be reduced. You know, I'm curious about the their Hasselblad mirrorless camera. Mm. I'm gonna go try. I'm gonna try one of those out at some point soon. Oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. It's so yeah, clear. but that's you know again, it's twenty grand, you know, for a setup. So this is basically yeah. our call out to Hasselblad to give you a camera. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I don't, I don't, well, you know, Leica is very great with lending. I can always mm. borrow cameras from them, but I don't know how how generous they are with donations. With actually, don't. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, anything else you you can tell tell me about the book and uh, and and how you're feeling about it coming out? Do you? Because I feel like I'm very, I'm overly excited, maybe too much excited about it. But no, I, it's great. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Getting good feedback from people mm. about it. So I'll, you know, I hope people get a sense of what the period was like, and I hope some of that is conveyed. You know, still a bunch more stuff. I don't know if I have another whole book. I mean, it's a book. There's a book's worth of stuff of us with Giger. When we were working with him, but beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what happens next. This Must Be the Gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. Consequence Podcast Network.